Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Today's Extrology podcast guest is Josh Huff, MD and founder at Careline Live, the first all-in-one management system for home care agencies to manage the circle of care between carers, agencies, family and friends. The company was set up by Josh in 2014 after being frustrated at the lack of access to his grandfather's care. He started his first business at just 13 and has enjoyed a number of successes ever since, whilst rising to the challenge of living with muscle weakening disorder, minicore myopathy. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Josh Huff, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here as our guest and uh, really looking forward to finding out more about your story, the story behind the story, if you like. But as is customary with all things astrology, we like to start with the early you, the early days, a bit of background. So if I might, by way of a question from the outset, ask you, where did you grow up and, and what therefore was childhood like for you? Sure. Thanks, Lee. Uh, thanks for having me. So I grew up in uh, a town called Horsham, based in West Sussex, kind of close to Gatwick. And life as a, as a child was was pretty good. I've had a relatively fortunate kind of upbringing in that sense. I've been able to travel and see quite a lot of the world, which has been good. But it's also kind of come with its challenges for me, which is always interesting. But yeah. So in terms of the kind of posters on the wall, I always think to reflect as to who your heroes might have been as a child. But who did you look up to? Who were those those posters on the wall? Oh, so that's, it's really interesting. There's a question you kind of get a lot, you know, when you fill in sort of like, pitch decks or whatever else you know who do you look up to why do you look up to them and who do you find aspirational I think as a child kind of growing up in I mean I was born in 92 but kind of like when you start to really grow up sort of like through mid to late 2000s and 2010 and stuff you know you start to get things on the telly like The Apprentice you started to learn more that actually business was something that everybody could do so for example like dragon's den and stuff like that started to kind of become a bit more mainstream i guess so who did i look up to it's a hard thing i I never was really one for posters on the wall and i can't say that i was always googling somebody to find out who they were but i think what really kind of got me was always looking at people that i thought i could do that so for example you know when you watch dragon's den for example and you you read about peter jones or or um it was it piers linney that guy from i think he founded Rackspace. I, I can't remember which one it was but anyway you know you, you start start thinking about that and you think actually technology interests me and what you're doing i can kind of see how that would make a difference and and how that would be good so yeah i guess those kind of like slightly tv personality entrepreneurs i kind of like have have kept a bit of an eye on i guess was technology an interest as a child? And at what point did perhaps, therefore, if it was, did you first start to show that interest? Yeah, so I guess if I kind of go back very much to the beginning, it, it sort of makes a bit more sense. So I was born with an extremely rare muscle condition called mini core myopathy, which is a, the easiest way of describing it is an overall general muscle weakness. And in very simple terms, you know, I can't necessarily walk very far. I get tired quickly, I can't lift heavy objects, stuff like that. So as a kid, sport was never my thing. It was never my jam, you know, give me a football, throw it at me and I'd probably not catch it sort of thing. So I kind of got into computing and computer games and stuff like that at a a young age because it's something that I could get enjoyment out of and, you know, that, that I could do. So, yeah, technology did always interest me. I was kind of always tinkering, you know, building computers while at secondary school and stuff like that so yeah definitely can you remember at, at what age you first understood that that diagnosis with is it minicure myopathy minicore yeah minicore how, how old were you and what, at what point did you start to understand that diagnosis so i guess i always knew i was a bit different if i remember rightly 
and I've probably got this wrong. I wasn't diagnosed officially until I was about six or seven or, or possibly even eight because of how rare a condition it is. When my sister was born, she's three years younger, it was a much easier diagnosis. And I've been through a significant amount of medical testing and, and medical research. You know, if you, if you Google it, Google Images is pretty much me. So I started to understand I was different forever. You know, I've kind of always known that. But its impact on my life kind of started to become towards the end of primary school age when doctors start making comments like, you know, you might have to uh, prepare for his future. You know, how is it going to work? Things like that. And at that point, you start to think, mm, OK, maybe there is something more here than I guess I appreciated at the time. But I guess that's always given me a real driving force to continue doing something because it, it is a bit of the kind of two finger type thing to to something like that that really says, actually, you can do it. You know, and there's the guy with Down syndrome who's made happy socks and stuff like that's awesome. And I think disability especially in business is not yet necessarily appreciated in the way that it could be one of the questions you never told was, I, I wanted to ask was how that diagnosis has impacted your attitude to life and, and also to business but from what you're saying it's a source of of energy if is that fair is that is that correct terminology to understand that it's it's something that drives you and something you're motivated to you know not to, certainly hasn't hindered in the sense of the drive that you evidence Oh, at five o'clock in the evening, it might certainly might be trying to hinder me. And at that point, you might sort of think, why? But yeah, ultimately, it, it has meant that I've always had an extra kind of real driving force behind me because I recognise that I'm lucky in the role that I do now and that I'm relatively flexible in the way that I work. And so therefore, I've had to make this future for myself. If I was to look at taking on a quote unquote typical employed role things might be very different for me so to build my own future has become extremely important and therefore you have to fight for that you alluded to to the likes of dragon's den and the apprentice i, I read that you developed an interest in a in business at, at an early age and in fact that you'd set up your first business which i think was a publishing company at 13 with your sister is that is that correct yeah so my sister just made something for a friend for a birthday and I said, look, I'll, I'll put that on a computer for you and kind of build it out in Microsoft Publisher. And and then um, at the time, my aunt and uncle owned a, a direct mailing house, uh, which also had an element of print in it. And so we've gone out to see them and kind of showed them and they said, look, this is cool. Like You could do stuff with that. And so the idea was formed that basically we had a magazine that was kind of run by kids so we'd take articles and stuff like that that were submitted but for kids as well so kind of like a, a young reading agent and I was doing that getting issues out monthly with my sister Zoe until I'd started my GCSEs basically. And what do you think you learned from that early experience? I guess the importance of kind of getting things right to a point you know you, you've got once you've gone to print, that's it, you've gone to print. I guess I learned even more about how technology was used in business. I learned more about finance. And suddenly at that point, I understood how a limited company was formed. I understood how it ran. I understood the requirements of it, what your responsibilities were. Quite a lot was, was kind of gleaned from that experience. And was that what led you to establish MAS Holdings yeah, at, that was, yeah. at, at 50? Yeah. What was the inspiration behind the business and, and how did you get started? So I was, again, kind of realised that actually technology was something that I was quite good at. So I was really doing things like building websites for family, friends and stuff like that. And in reality, what I realised was I'm not an artist. I'm also not a designer. And whilst I can code that's probably not my strongest point. What I'm best at is the management aspect of that, the sales aspect of it, and kind of running the business side of it. So when I left college, well, I was still doing it while I was at college, but when I left college, I got decent grades, but I didn't get the grades to do what I wanted to do at university. So after I'd left college, I took a year out to do a reset and, and since ended up turning on off or down. But 
in that year, I realized I had to make some money somehow. I had to keep myself afloat and, and I had to kind of keep doing things. So I was getting friends and stuff like that to do the work for me that I was selling on for them. So friends at university were topping up their beer fund, for example, while I was able to, to kind of go and help with that. Am I right in thinking the plan originally, or the plan had been perhaps to study law? Was that the yeah. the original thought process? Yeah, it was. I'd, I'd always been interested in that, you know, standing in court with a wig on sort of thing. It had always kind of been a bit, bit interesting. But what I did realise after kind of doing the research and after actually doing this for sort of about six or nine months was that education's great, but everybody reaches a point where education is not something that they want to continue with. And sitting back and looking in hindsight to look at a course that was going to be very minimal actual contact time. And for me, a lot of responsibility on myself going and doing the reading, etc. I don't think I would have managed. And not because I don't have the drive to do it, but because I get interested by life and stuff going on. And so to sit and read a book probably wouldn't have worked. So what was the inspiration or the story behind Careline Life? So we were working with a care agency and they said to, to me, basically, look, we, we love what you do as a business. Was this building websites at this point? Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. so so we'd taken them, we, we'd literally helped them with every step of the way. So we'd done their branding, we'd built their website. And then when they moved offices, we set up their office, installed their equipment, that sort of stuff, and, and supported that and ran that for them. And they said, look, really like the way that you're doing this for us, really like the way you guys work as a business. You're obviously kind of very intelligent and when I say you guys it was was just me but you know there was people behind the scenes helping when necessary and they said look we want to better manage our remote workforce can you help us so I looked at the industry and looked at the solutions that were on offer fortunately I was able to kind of go around as them so no one kind of worked out who I was or what I was doing so I was able to go and look at competitor platforms and things. And, and what I realized is it was incredibly expensive to manage that remote workforce. And actually, the amount of data that they had wasn't that great. So I kind of looked at it and, and sat down with Deck, who's now my CTO or, or director of development, kind of said, look, we need to find a way of giving the carers more information but giving the office more information and certainty about the carers in a way that actually becomes cost effective. So looking at things like instead of using NFC tags to mark that you've arrived, using a QR code, but then how do you guarantee the QR code is in the right place? Well, you need to do GPS. By the time you've kind of added more stuff together, you can build a picture that says, yes, that carer was there. Yes, they were there for that amount of time. and Yes, this is what they did. And so that strikes me as, and you'll have to forgive me and evidencing my lack of technical smarts, but nonetheless, that strikes me as a relatively comp stitching it all together. In principle, the what you describe it in and of itself, that, that technology clearly exists, but actually stitching it all together and making it, developing a meaningful platform that has genuine value for the end user is another story entirely. So where do you even begin to start with that kind of proposition? The first thing to look at when you're looking at this kind of space is is looking at who's going to be the user of it. And not only just who's going to be the user of it, but who are actually all of those stakeholders involved in that process, right? So you've got home care agencies. You've, you, of course, have the managers, you have the owners. Then you've got the service user or the patient, the person receiving the care. Then you've got the carers who are doing the care. And then you've also got now and very much more so since COVID, you've got the family, friends, GPs, and, and other kind of key people involved. So our version one was very basic. We read from an on-premise database or a database in the customer's office, wasn't made by us, and we read the rotor or the scheduling information. We sent it to, at the time, Rackspace. We analyzed it, and then we gave every carer a mobile phone, and we pushed it out to them. So they had access to their rotor and then they would check in. So they'd press check in when they arrived, scan a code. And then when they leave, they they press the same thing. And the whole point about that was to keep that absolutely as simple as possible. It had to be the, the kiss, keep it simple, stupid, right? 
So then when they left, they check out. And then what you'd have is the management aware of what was going on and what's happening. But as you look forward as technology sort of changes, now obviously this is very much pre-COVID, but one of my grandfathers was receiving home care at the time and being a long way away from us, the frustrating thing was not being able to see what was happening to him. So suddenly, not only was my customer saying that you're doing pretty good at your visit monitoring, you could go and sell that to other people. I was then looking at the other side of actually, how could the family get more information out of that? And what we started to realize is we had to build the whole suite, the management system with what we then called a family portal attached to it, which would enable those key stakeholders access to the schedule and ticks that have been attended in its simplest form. Since winning an Innovate grant in late 2020 and developing that through late 2020, early 2021, what we've actually done is we've expanded on that portal to now allow those stakeholders access to way more information. For example, the ambulance can now turn up and scan and see when the medication was last administered. They can see observations they can see schedule entries so they know when the carers were last there. But not only can medical professionals see that on a one-time access basis, but you or I, with a loved one in receiving home care, can log in and see that now as well. So if you reflect and look back, was there a, you know, people talk about, you know, starting with the end in mind and that's kind of big, hairy, audacious goal for which you're, you're shooting for the stars. Was there any of that kind of thought process or was it that you were solving a problem for you know, someone with whom you had a working relationship and, and it sort of it wouldn't be so trite to say it happened by accident but almost it's it was it was always serendipitous that things evolved as they did uh probably an element of both we're solving a problem that existed for real people hmm. but as part of solving that real problem you're looking at actually what else can i do to solve that problem and what other problems can i solve by you know using a system like that so, so what were some of those, some of the bigger challenges that you faced in those early days? So the first thing is obviously making sure that you have something that's reliable, building it on a, on architecture that's scaling and, and redundant and high availability, et cetera. Now, that's not really my forte and, and Deck could speak more, more about that, but it, that's very much the, the key thing. You know, we have to look at the fact that our customers work 24-7 and we have to be able and confident that that could be supported. And then it's the ease of use, right? So you are solving a problem, which means you have to be able to solve that problem through whatever solution it is. So for example, maybe a medication chart, you've got to have that uploaded. They've got to be able to complete it. You've got to be able to report on it. But how can you make it so that a sector that needs technology and doesn't want technology actually use that in a way that they don't feel like technology is hindering what they would normally do and how do you overcome it it struck me that you you mentioned deck did you say who's your i guess the thought or the question that springs to my mind is where did you find deck because you often hear these stories of kind of you know if you're if you're developing a technology business and whilst, as you mentioned earlier, you, I think without wishing to put words in your mouth, you can code, but it's not necessarily your your strengths, respectfully. Yeah. But that you know that accusation that you you start a tech business, but you don't have necessarily the depth of tech smarts to make that happen. Finding that tech co-founder is often a huge, whether it's a co-founder, partner, or employee, it's a big part of the journey. Where did you find deck? Did you guys know each other? Was there a you know a, how did how did that come about? Yeah, so uh, we went to school with each other. Okay. So we've known each other since we were sort of like 14, 15. So, you know, 15 years later, we're sitting here. And I always remember having a conversation with Dex saying, do you want to come on full time? And and he said, I don't really want to build care software for the rest of my life sort of thing. And then I took the first round of equity investment. And while Dex kind of knew what was going on, I'd sort of said something. I hadn't really said a lot about it. And so it got to the end of his university and I said, you know, look, I've, I've got this. I can kind of offer you this kind of position. And uh, he said, OK, can we have an office in London? So that was then kind of a, well, OK, yeah, you know, if that's if that's kind of the deal breaker. So that's sort of where it started, really. And was there a, 
a eureka moment, if you like, a point at which you realised that you were onto something. You thought, actually, there's a business here as opposed to respectfully just solving a problem, but there's actually, this is a business proposition. Yeah, I think that throughout the growth stage of a business, you always look at different metrics and you think, oh, when I've made a million pound or whatever, that will be a huge thing to recognise. So I think for me, one of the key ones was when we hit a thousand users and then when we hit 100 customers. And at that point, you start to think, well, okay, actually, this isn't just something that five or six or seven people want. This is something that loads of people want. And then when you start getting inbound leads for international customers as well, knowing that actually that you believe is a sector there, but you've not really kind of tried to explore it too much. When you get those inbound leads and you convert them and you think, well, you know, that's now being used in however many countries it is across the world, you start to think, okay, yeah, there there really, really is something behind that. And then you're taking private equity and people are saying to you, this is great. I think that's kind of where it, where those different levels of Eureka moment come. Mm-hmm. And I can't really say what necessarily what my next Eureka would be. I mean, you know, we're, we're at about one, one and a half million in revenue. When you hit two, you suddenly think, that's, that's the next one. 10,000 carers will be another achievement for us. 500 customers will be another achievement for us. So yeah, I, I think those those Eureka moments always change. And I can't think that it's like, yeah, you know, when Elon Musk got his first rocket into space, that is a Eureka moment. I can't necessarily think of any like that, but I can certainly think of some really big milestones that I have along the way. Looking back, is there anything that in those early days you might have done differently? Yeah, probably started this in America. At the time we raised the first round of investment, which was 2017, I think it would be fair to say that the UK private equity or angel space was not massively au fait and understood at that point hugely the valuations and the investments in SaaS products. And I think if I had have done this in America, you know, you look at something like Facebook, it's a completely different platform to us, but you look at Facebook and you see however much money they IPO'd for or, or raised or whatever, yet they weren't generating revenue at some of those points. You know, we were a revenue generating business. We had real customers. And I think the journey would have been sort of easier if we'd have been in America. We would have been slightly better funded and we we may have been able to go faster than we have been. But that being said, I'm really happy with the way that it's worked out because we've built a far more resilient business by going slightly slower, I guess, than more money would have meant that we would have done. So, yeah, I think that would be one thing that I would change. But then also I wouldn't have the space that I know I've got here of 15,000 potential customers, 750,000 potential users. So, Do you think the landscape has shifted in terms of the willingness or understanding amongst the investment community around the SaaS proposition? My sense is we're still some way behind the US in terms of some of the investment opportunities that you might describe, but that that actually the, the landscape has shifted significantly in terms of that investment case? The landscape has shifted, definitely. I think we are still behind the US. I try not to focus on it because mm. I want a better understanding of the multiples and stuff that they pay in the UK rather than the comparison and, and, and whatever. So I think it, it has shifted. We aren't at the same point yet, but I was fortunate to go through the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Programme. And in the UK, there was a, the finance guy that took some of the presentations or seminars was a guy called Pete Wilde. And he turned around and said that one of the things that Brexit will do is it will increase investment in R&D in the UK because we will suddenly have the most attractive R&D tax credit scheme outside of Europe. In fact, if not in Europe as well. And so I think what that has done is that is starting to bring more tech businesses into the UK because we do have some fantastic tax breaks. We do have some fantastic grants on offer for companies like us. Yes, they're not always easy to get, but they are there. And so I think it's changing. And I think it's partly because of external factors that are encouraging more businesses to start in the UK. Tell me about that that Goldman Sachs experience. What do you feel you gained from, from that experience in particular? 
one of the things that their aim is to get you to do is is to look at what they say work on your business not in your business and it's really hard when somebody tells you that and you've only got like six staff or whatever it is and and ultimately you know you still are the tea maker the hooverer and everything else that goes uh, you know is associated with that but it was really useful to hear and I think also forcing me to go out of the business at the time because it was pre-covid it was in person so some of it was, was online some of it was in person but forcing me out of the business on four occasions for two solid days where actually I couldn't sit there and do my emails at the same time as doing something else you have to start to trust the people that are in your business at the time that's probably what I learned most out of it alongside yeah the business teaching but the ability to hand something over and say you do this I'll do that my sense would be from my own experience and, and certainly conversations I would have had along similar lines in the past that that transition or that on your business in your business debate it's a common theme amongst entrepreneurs you know how do you make that transition not least you know I think probably possibly in your case you alluded from the get-go about perhaps your strength being in more of the running of the business itself and that therefore you perhaps had a natural leaning to more of that than maybe some do who might be more technically based as a founder. But how did you go about then taking that learning? How did you go with the steps that you took or, or things that you did that meant you could maintain that focus once that course, once, you, once you've been through that Goldman Sachs experience, were you able to fulfill it? And if so, how did you achieve it? You begin to realise that actually one of the most important things in your business or I, th- I think now is is to surround yourself with the right people and to be able to feel like you can trust those people and sometimes that doesn't pay off sometimes you take the wrong people on sometimes they don't work out the way that you hope they're going to but ultimately you still have to give them the opportunity to allow them to do something so you have to give them that initial trust and I think the Goldman Sachs thing taught me that actually I can let people get on with stuff and I can say to somebody, can you go and do something? And when they say, I don't know how to do it. And you say, well, why don't have you tried Googling it yet? And they kind of work it out for themselves. And it actually encourages their professional development as well as yours in a funny sort of way, because although you're not developing your knowledge necessarily, what you're developing is your ability to have faith, put trust in and work with your team. So what would you suggest you'd see as the three most important things you've learned as a result of the of the business that you have grown to date? The more money you have, the better you're going to do. That is a very, very big thing. You know, I underestimated at the very beginning how much ultimately something like this would cost to do. I also think if you're like me and you've run through the private equity space and the angel investments, etc., one of the most important things you can do is keep everybody informed of actually what's happening, the regular updates. You could tell them the bad things with a positive spin on it. So you can always keep them up to date, etc. And I think the third thing is, is probably to recognise that your people are your most important assets. Your customers are extremely important. But ultimately, you can't support your customers if you don't have the people there to support them. So Keeping your staff happy, making sure they're motivated, giving them opportunities, allowing them flexibility within their working day, those little things start to become important. And when you get that balance right, you get a motivated team that actually want to see your business grow as well because they're seeing something out of it. Do you find that that's true as of, of in terms of raising capital as well, that in terms of picking the right partners? which I'd imagine is also hard on the basis that you're you're seeking investment and therefore ultimately when you go to market, the first thought is the cash is what we need, right? But then the dangers are, you know, and there's plenty of stories out there of picking the wrong investors. It's, it's that trying to balance that between the needs and the demands as they are today versus ensuring you attract the right partners for the short, medium or long term. That I would imagine is also a significant challenge. That's always going to be a catch 22, right? you're always going to either have the perfect person or the not so perfect person. The important thing I think is to try and work with investors that share relatively similar values, but also either let you get on with it 
or really understand the space that you're working in. So we are a B2B business. We're a B2B SaaS business. But actually, our selling has to be done almost very B2C because the majority, and you know, I don't know how many of your listeners might you know, be running home care agencies, but the majority of those businesses are lifestyle businesses. They're not necessarily mama and pop, you know, they've grown up a bit from there, but you know, the average would be probably 40 carers per business in the UK. So talking about things like true ROI or or sweating your assets by making your carers working more, etc. It's not the metrics that they look at or they understand. So sitting down and doing death by PowerPoint that some typical B2B companies would do doesn't work. So if you get a VC that comes on board that says, well, I know how you should be selling to your customers and it's like this, that scares me because that isn't how our business works. And so you're always going to struggle with that real catch-22. We've got Hatch now as our first kind of institutional investor, if you like. They're an EIS fund. And what's great about the guys there, Simon and Fred and, and the rest of the team, is that they genuinely seem to try and understand what their portfolios are doing and how their portfolio works. So Simon Penson sits as one of our board observers and his input and suggestions are very useful. But what's good is he's never turning around to me and saying, this is how you should do it. They might say, this is what we think you should do, but they're genuinely trying to understand what the problem is. I'd imagine, therefore, your customer relationships are, they seem an obvious thing to say, arguably what business would determine otherwise, but absolutely critical to your success. As you imagine, there's a emotion has, you know, if you, if you wrap emotion into it, it has, has arguably not necessarily the right sort of connotations, but I'd imagine it's a very emotional purchase that the that your customer is making they want to invest in you they want to understand your values your the way you do things so that therefore those relationships you build are integral and very important incredibly important you know when you look at our business i've always said to the team dress not that as a business we should control the way that our staff dress i'm I'm not not massively into that but i've always said to the team you must be approachable and things like a suit, whilst, yes, deemed very smart and, yes, professional, sometimes appear to be a barrier to those customers, right? It makes you unrelatable. So I'd far rather my staff walk in in, in a nice shirt and a smart pair of jeans to a meeting than I would turn around and say, walk in and, you know, Armani suit or whatever it is with a tie and perfectly folded pocket square. So it's about being relatable. It's about talking to your customers it's about our customers feeling like they're able to talk to real people and they're not a number on the spreadsheet and they're not just you know answering purely on tickets we we have a phone line they can call us they can talk to us yes tickets is easier but for us and it's better but we're not stopping them talking in another way i guess clearly we've we've we're coming out of we're evolving if you like from as i understand it pandemic to epidemic which of itself is uh, still sounds somewhat scary, but nonetheless, that work has been massively impacted over the last couple of years, how we work, where we work in particular. How has COVID-19 impacted the way you've been working and, and therefore what impact do you think that it has on the, on the workplace of the future? When COVID first hit, for us, things were slightly different because we already had a remote workforce in a way. We already had a travelling sales team. But what we didn't have is we didn't have absolutely everybody working from home. And what I think as a business we lost is that spin your chair around moment of ask a quick question. We're very technology focused. You know, we've got Slack, we've got Teams, we've got whatever else it may be. We've got IP phones, we've got mobile phones, right? So we can all talk to each other all the time. But it's not quite as simple as that. Yeah, spin the chair around and, and have a question. So moving towards things like way more regular meetings. So, for example, we, we have a, a Monday morning meeting, which is brief overview of kind of what happened to the, to the tail end of the week, and what happened is happening this week. And everyone attends that. My development guys, they all have a meeting every day and they have their, their dev stand up. 
every Tuesday and Thursday, we have our sales team stand up, which is just our sales going. So we've had to evolve. We've had to kind of become more communicative in a, in a digital way. And we've had to make time for more of those things that typically we might not have done. It was all too easy to turn around and say, oh, I'll be on the train then or I'll be doing this. But actually, it's really important. A consistent theme amongst those with whom I engage has been in terms of what they might have missed from the from the office is a bit as you've described. It's almost the the creativity that the informality of the workplace would have afforded, that ability, you know, to bump into someone while grabbing a coffee or, you know, what we used to refer to as kind of the water cooler chat, you know, but actually by physically having that proximity or seeing someone across an office and thinking, ah yes, I must ask, you know, David about that, whoever it might be. You know, it, that's been a consistent theme as to something that people have missed. So the beauty of the you know, setting up these sort of formal and getting better at communicating, I think, is seen as a plus. But actually, that sort of spontaneity, if you like, is is perhaps something that people seem maybe to have missed. And I, I, my sense is that for many, evolving to a hybrid model seems to be the direction of travel. But perhaps the sort of the nine to five, Monday to Friday, that genie is well and truly out of the bottle, right? But uh, but I, my sense is perhaps that we end up with some sort of hybrid offering, and businesses are wrestling with what that might look like. What, what are your thoughts? Do you see? Do you see that? sort of remote offering evolving further or how do you see it? I think that we will see more of a move back towards office-based working, particularly for certain teams. You know, our development team, for example, they are typically maybe slightly younger than other members of the business and they are living this kind of London lifestyle, which they can afford to do and, and we make sure they, they can, but they're still ultimately maybe in one or two bedroom flats with no garden and no kind of outdoor space really. And so those guys are going to be the people that are going to be pushing in to go back towards the office. I think other people are going to not push as hard for those moves back towards towards the office space. So I think we're going to have to kind of, it's going to find its own way to a point but I think there's going to be an element of actually a business we're going to have to encourage that. So, for example, encouraging two days a week in the office to make sure there is that social interaction and stuff like that for everybody, whilst also allowing you to do more if you want to. And ideally, not less if you don't want to, but, you know, more if you want to, then you can sort of thing. So we know that the London office that, that we have will not see everybody that will want to use it. So not everybody is going to be able to do every day of the week. Previously, we might have overspec that. Now, actually, to have it slightly underspec'd is, is going to work out better for us. And, and ultimately, it helps our profitability anyway, but encourages people to be a bit more sensible about how they work. So, so what excites you about the future for, uh, for Careline? Um. Look, expanding on, on our international territories is hugely exciting. You know, we, we've got customers in Australia, Ireland and Spain and Malta and stuff like that. But I think when we really push into the Canada or the US, kind of those real like North American markets, that's going to be, there's the song isn't there, you know, started from the bottom, now we're here, right? And I think that really is going to be a, a, a pivotal, pivotal moment. And that the prospect of that excites me. We're also looking at various M&A strategies as well. And they also are, are an exciting journey. You know, when I started this business, yes, okay, I'd had a bit of experience before, but ultimately everything that I've done to date, I've learned really whilst doing this. So, you know, to get that experience of growing internationally, to get that experience of, of, of an M&A or something like that would equally be great clearly being in the SaaS space, what developments in technology really excite you? AI, I think, is a really interesting area that, that's coming out. I don't yet know what it's really going to hold for this sector because the more you involve technology, the less you have the personalization, the person-centered aspect of it. And ultimately, care is all about people. Mm -hmm. So there is a risk of moving towards something too digital taking away from that, hi, my name's Josh, hi, Lee, how are you? You know, that conversation. And I think 
we need to be careful of that. But there's certainly ways that we can harness that. Other things like IoT and how we could use, say, environment sensors within our platform to ensure that actually when the carer isn't there, the client is still safe and how we can share that with everybody so everyone knows what's happening. And I think AI and IoT combined would be phenomenal additions to this to this sector. I think it's an interesting. I remember, I can't remember specifically the year, but reading an article, and I want to say probably 15 years ago, because I remember it was, it was at the time of the global financial crisis and it was referencing bankers and the future. And the basic premise of the article was in the Sunday Times, if I recall correctly, was that by 2050, nurses would be paid more than bankers, was the argument of the basic premise of the, of the article. And the argument had been that, that anything that could be delivered via some form of algorithm or via some form of technology, we'd end up with, in effect, fewer, more highly paid in the banking sector because that ultimately would be delivered via software in some way, shape or form. But the, the thought had been that care, as an example, or anything that couldn't be delivered by technology, care, hairdressing was an example that was given, waiting tables, was anything that required the human touch, it would explode and we would start to attribute value back in terms of the reward that we, we gave to people, value back to that space. And I think it's interesting that you're, you know, we, we have a, we have clearly, if we look at just the UK, we have an aging population. Care is a, is an issue as a space. It strikes me that from a public sector perspective is, is, it's difficult to fund. Private space is stepping up in many ways, but ha so has challenges, but also huge opportunities. So technology is a sort of enabler and facilitator and an enhancer of that experience becomes ever more central, I'd imagine aligned with the need to deliver the human experience element to it, the care piece. So I imagine the, the opportunities for the sector are, are really quite exciting, albeit I should imagine still very much early days in terms of how that plays out. I think so. There are companies that are trying to accelerate that process. But actually, when you look at the quality of what's being delivered, it still doesn't beat that true human interaction. and one of the risks and the change management objections and processes that we always come across with, with the businesses is if they're completing everything on their phone, does the person that they're looking after still believe that actually they're paying attention? So if I'm standing there completing a med sheet on my phone, am I still engaged with the customer? You know, am I still involved with, engaged with the, the service user or patient? And if someone talks to me, I'm quite capable of sending a text message whilst I am having a conversation with them. But maybe other generations don't necessarily feel like that and, and see that. So when you've got somebody writing on a piece of paper, they believe that, that that's still happening, if you see what I mean. So it is trying to happen. It has to happen. The Care Quality Commission want digitalization. We have to digitalize more stuff because we need to make that workforce more efficient because there isn't the money for it yet, as care homes reduce in terms of you know number of people in care homes that are maybe state funded, as, as that goes down, there will ultimately be more money for home care as it's cheaper. But even so then, we have to be careful that tech doesn't come in the way. And that's, I think, yeah, the biggest problem. So who has been the greatest influence on your career and why? I don't know, to be honest. I think life has possibly had the biggest influence on, on my career as a whole and some of the people that I've met along the way. I couldn't necessarily clearly pinpoint one person that, you know, I'll take all of their advice on and do everything that they suggest. If any of the, the board or the investors you know, said to me, have you thought about doing this, would always consider their opinion, always consider their suggestion. But it would, I wouldn't necessarily make that purely carry out what one person is doing. So I think that's a really hard question to answer. What, what about in terms of then perhaps those that you admire? Who do you admire? Again, like you could admire lots of different people for lots of different reasons, right? So you can look at, say, Lord Sugar and you can say, amazing, you built however many hundreds of million pound worth of business out of the back of a van. That's fantastic. You know, I can look at some of our investors and say, you've built a phenomenal marketing company. 
by yourself or you've done really well in the financial services space and look at what you're now able to do. I think that's it's it's a really, really hard question to answer because everything asks for it and kind of nobody necessarily or I don't know how sometimes people can just identify and say that one thing makes the biggest amount of difference. Do I want to be Elon Musk? No, I don't. You know, do I want to have a business as big as his? Yes, of course I do. But my dream is not to send satellites into space or or to build a self-driving electric car. I'd far rather drive around in a in a, in a high performance petrol car than I would, you know, an electric car. But yeah. So, so what drives you? Continuously trying to prove myself wrong in a way that I'm always trying to say, you really can do it. And there's, everyone always has an element of belief that, that they can't. And when you prove to yourself that you can, that's a really big achievement. And actually recognition that you can do something as well is something really important, I think. That's self-belief. But to get self-belief, you it's a, it's a learning process. It doesn't come naturally. And, and you've got to be able to do things that make you feel like that. You know, to turn around to my staff and, and have them say, actually, they're proud of what they, they've achieved. Or to be able to tell them that you're proud of what they've achieved. So they feel like they've grown in something as well. And that really does keep pushing me forward that kind of drives though those decisions that you make every day money obviously is also a driver any for-profit company would be i believe would be naive in saying that actually money isn't important to them it is important and having a nice life and the lifestyle that i want to lead and have is important to me as well but i think all of them to me, come as, as, as an equal, there isn't one thing that stands out. You know, I'm not going to go and do one thing because it makes me more profit. I will look at it and say, what does it do for everybody that's around that, that table? Hmm. So what does success mean to you? Ultimately, success will mean an exit at some point. I'd always hope that it would be by the time I'm 30 and I'm, you know, seven months, six months away from that now. Realistically, it's not going to happen by then. But an exit is success. Now, you know, seeing us go over a million in turnover, that feels like success. Getting up every morning and feeling like our software is making a difference is success. You know, I'm looking at the number of care hours that we're providing. I'm looking at the number of carers that are using our platform every day. And I'm seeing something grow from something that if you said to me five years ago, would you be making care software? Well, actually, six years ago, seven years ago, maybe. No, probably not. And and I, I can't tell you what I would be doing, but I don't necessarily think it would be this. So, so away from work, how do you unwind and relax? So I've got a dog. He's lovely. He's great. And obviously, yeah, I've got my partner and my family, so we spend a lot of time doing a lot, a lot of different things. I, I really like to travel. That's something that, that for me, really allows me to... Well, the team will tell you I'm awful. I'm still working while I'm away, but it does allow me to disconnect and, and go and see different things. I like different cultures, different food, and those different experiences that life gives you. You know, bizarrely for somebody my age, I really like going on cruises because you get off every day and you see something completely different. And, <laughs> you know, not everybody else on there is of the same mindset of you. But yeah, you know, I, I really like that. And that's really good. So, I think holidays and, and travel are, are fantastic. I, I like live music and also I um, shoot as well. And I, so, you know, some people won't necessarily like that. I don't shoot people. But yeah, I try and do things that kind of disconnect me for, you know, even an hour from what it is that, that I would be looking at on my phone otherwise. The phone is the necessary evil that everybody hates. So, so if you look back to starting your own business at 13, with what you now know, what advice might you give 13-year-old Josh Huff? I absolutely would say don't give up. Like, you know, and I think there are plenty of opportunities where it would have been too easy to do that. And I'd say that to everybody. You know, there always will be an opportunity where you sit there and think, I just don't want to do it anymore. I just can't do it anymore. And at that point, you could turn around and throw it all away. The thing that you have to realise is that that's not always going to be the case. You know, when you look at the bank balance, you get another text message saying that we couldn't process this, we've returned it, or, or this has bounced or whatever. You know, you, you wake up dreading looking at the account in the morning. And 
if you can push through those days, if you can push through those mornings, if you can push through those sleepless nights, you do get to a point where you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it could be a long ass tunnel. Yeah, for sure. So what does the future look like for you? Ultimately, the future is to to massively grow where we are now, to continue making sure that we maintain that personal aspect of the business. You know, we're really looking after people that look after people. And then to, to push towards an exit at, at some point for the business. And then after that, who knows? And where can people go to find out more about Careline Live? Uh, so you can visit carelinelive.com. Uh, you can see the information on there. You can sign up to our mailing lists. We're always sending out new things about new product, new things that we're doing, new ways in which we're helping people and helping the sector. And there's also a lot of PR and press coming out about us now. So there's there's loads of places, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. I don't really post much, but as you're know, kind of starting to become more of a thought leader in the space, then, then I, there's more articles going on there from me. But yeah. Fantastic. Josh, it's, it's a wonderful story. It's uh, and my sense is that whilst clearly the success that you've enjoyed with Careline Live and the evolution, the journey that the business is on, is ramping up fast, but that for you personally, it feels like it's only just the beginning, despite the fact that here we are, as you approach your, is it 30, are you 30 this year? Yeah. It's rare that I might meet a 30 year old who's enjoyed a 17 year business career already, but nonetheless, so you've, you've a wealth of experience, but I, I suspect many, many, many more days to come. So I wish you continued success. Really appreciate you sharing your, your story with us this afternoon. And we look forward to watching you continue to flourish. Thanks very much, Lee. My pleasure. Thanks, Josh. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.